Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Usually we would be studying the Parsha for Chol HaMoed Sukkot today, because this is Sukkot, right? We're in the middle of Sukkot, uh, and then next week is Simchat Torah, uh, and so this would be the Shabbat where we read the Cholamoid Sukkot reading. And at the Simchat Torah services, we would read Vizot HaBracha, the closing reading of Torah, and begin Breshit, right, at the same time. But because we don't ever really read Vizot HaBracha at Simchat Torah, what we do is we just kind of finish it and start Breshit. We don't really ever study Vizot HaBracha. Uh, and we've studied Cholamoid Sukkot a lot. And it's not the only time of the year we read that reading. So we're going to look at Vizot HaBracha as a Torah study uh, group. We are doing our celebration of Torah tonight. <clears throat> so we're not, it's not Simchat Torah, we're not calling it Simchat Torah, but we are going to celebrate, right, the fact that we are coming to the end of the cycle and the beginning of a new cycle of reading. So we as a group, as a study team, we are finishing, right, with the rest of the triennial world, we are finishing the second third of every Parsha. We're finishing the second year of the triennial reading, which means when you go to Hebcal or you look in the Sidor for what we're going to read next week, we're now going to be reading on the third year of the triennial cycle. We'll be reading the last third of every portion. Can I ask what Chol means? means not Yontif. So it's the holiday, but it's not Yom Tov. It's not a day where we are prohibited from working and doing all of our regular stuff. So Yom Tov is at the beginning of the holiday. If you are some Jews, it's two days. Reconstructionism is one day. When Kaplan and his followers were making our luach, our, um, our calendar, our holiday calendar, they went with the practice in the land of Israel which is to do one day of Yom Tov. Uh, and so we do one day of Yom Tov at the beginning, and then we do Yom Tov at the end of the festival. Right, Pesach is the same way. It's Yom Tov at the beginning and Yom Tov at the end. But in the middle, it's Chol HaMoed. Chol means what? Chol means regular. Um, moed is season or time. So it's a regular day within the Moed, within the time of the festival. I heard Cholamoid when I was a child forever, and everybody assumed I knew what it meant. <laughs> <laughs> that is the wonderful part of growing up and growing older, yes, that we can say, uh, excuse me, what does that mean? <laughs> I've heard that my whole life, and I have no idea what that means. Wonderful. Yes. Yes. Um, well, no, because if it's if you start at a diff- no, Yisker is always at the end of the festival. The rabbis give us an opportunity at the end of every festival to remember our dead and to grieve, because we're told um, we are commanded to rejoice on the festival, and so the rabbis know. Okay, that's fine. You can command people to rejoice, but if they're in mourning. Right, or if they're, you know, if they're, if it, this is the season where they lost someone and holidays 
can touch that stuff off, right? They, they in their kindness and in their love for us, gave us the opportunity at the end of the festival to have some time to remember the people who are not here. Um, and so on our calendar, it's a little different than on everyone else's calendar for Sukkot. Um, and so our Yisker is different. What chapter and verse are we starting with? Deuteronomy chapter 34. Because it's a short parsha, we're going to begin at the beginning rather than chop it up. Oh, sorry. No, no, sorry. I lied. Are we starting at the beginning? Yeah, but the beginning of the Zotah Bracha. It's 1273 in the green. 1202. Yeah. 1202. So 33 1. <clears throat> the, great, the great poem, the Zotah Bracha, which closes the entire book of Deuteronomy as well as the entire five books uh, of Moses. This is the last words, right, of Moses. He is... <laughs> We're so sorry to see you. It's so funny because that's exactly where Yael Shai went this week. That's very funny that that's your reaction. That's, so I'll, I'll share with you her words, of course, but um, that's exactly where she went, was too. When you put it that way... The last words of Moshe to the people. Um, he wants to bless them. He wants to send them off with blessings for they should have a good life. They should live. They should be well. Um, and it's a slightly different side of Moshe we see here. When Moshe talks to the people, how, how do we generally characterize that? How would you characterize that? Kind of preaching. Kind of preaching sometimes, right? He's the preacher. And the teacher? Generally, it's not his own words. He's, you know, relaying what God said. So, rarely is Moshe actually talking to the people from himself. First He's usually channeling, right? He's usually the prophet. So, he's speaking God's words to the people, usually. What else? Sometimes he's admonishing them. He's telling them they did bad stuff. <laughs> that is often... The tone and tenor of Moshe's conversation with the people, right, is how they've messed up, how they've screwed up. So that um, that is often the the tone that we get with Moshe. And this is a different side, a slightly different side of Moshe. And for some people, in my experience, they're a little different at the end. Usually not. <laughs> Usually in my experience, people die the same way they lived. That's been my experience. Yep. That those who've had a really difficult time of it in life have a very difficult death. Um, but sometimes, and it's not even just the end meaning death, sometimes it's when we get news or we get a scare that it could be the end. When people are diagnosed... When they have a heart attack, you know, when something happens, it really abruptly brings people face to face with their own mortality. Sometimes there is a shift. And sometimes that shift is a slight softening of the edge. Because what's our edge often about? 
Fear of death. <laughs> anger. Fear of death. Anger. Our edge is often about anger. Protection. Protection. I want to protect myself, so I'm going to make sure I attack first or keep people at a distance. Insecurity. Insecurity. I'm not sure, so I'm going to act like I am because then I might convince myself that I actually am certain or in control. So all that edginess, all the hardness that we tend to display, often when people are at the end, it's like, what's the point? They they are insecure, right? It's all it's all now insecure, you know, um, or they drop into trust because that's now it's the only way to go. There's there's less fear of being hurt because I'm dealing with the ultimate. When I'm dealing with the ultimate, what do I really care about? Whatever it is you're going to say to me that might hurt me. So I think this is what we see with Moshe. We see we see a a vulnerable, softer side of Moshe as he's saying goodbye to the people. As he's, he knows this is it. He knows this is the end. He's lived his entire career for these people and their well-being, even though they screw it up again and again and again and again and again. Are there parallels to Yaakov when he dies and he, he puts a blessing on the different children? I guess who's Interesting. Um, what's fascinating about that is that he does that blessing and then lives. <laughs> so, so he might have but thought it was the end, the end, but it turns out it wasn't. But it's at the end. Of the <laughs> right. The last. Right. So. Okay. So let's look at a little bit of Vizot Tabracha. Let's look at um, a little bit of this poem, uh, and then we're going to move to the end. Is yeah? this in couplets like Zinu? Correct. So, and sometimes it's a collection of couplets. So we talked about the colon, right? The mm-hmm. two, the two lines. Hebrew poetry is two lines at a time. Sometimes it's a collection of four lines or six lines together. And what did we say makes biblical poetry beautiful and clever? Repeats. Good, Reuben was paying attention. Um, it's that you say the same thing different ways. It's not about rhyme. It's not about meter. It's not. Right, it's about making a statement and then finding another beautiful way to say the exact same thing. All right. So, so who wants to start? Thirty-three, one. This is the blessing which Moses, the man of God, bade the Israelites farewell before he died. He said, "The Lord came from Sinai. He shone upon them from Seir. He appeared from Mount Paran and approached from Rehoboth Kodesh, lightning flashing at them from his right." Lover indeed of the people, their hallowed are in your hand. They followed in your steps, accepting your pronouncements. When Moses charged us with his teaching, uh, with the teaching, as the heritage of the congregation of Jacob, then he became king of Yeshurun when the heads of the people assembled the tribes of Israel together. May Reuven live and not die, though few be his members. Go on. And this he said of Judah. Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah and restore him to his people. Though his own hands strive for him, help him against his foes. And of Levi he said, Let your thummim and urim be with you, with your faithful one, whom you tested at Massah, challenged at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I consider them not. His brothers he disregarded, ignored his own children. 
Your precepts alone they observed and kept your covenant. They shall teach your laws to Jacob and your instructions to Israel. They shall offer you incense to savor and whole offerings on your altar. Bless, O Lord, his substance and favor his undertakings. Smite the loins of his foes. Let his enemies rise no more. Of Benjamin he said, Beloved of the Lord, he rests securely beside him. Ever does he protect him as he rests between his shoulders. And of Yosef he said, Blessed of the Lord be his land with the bounty of dew from heaven. And of the deep that couches below with the bounteous yield of the sun and the bounteous crop of the moons with the best from the ancient mountains and the bounty of hills immemorial with the bounty of earth and its fullness and the favor of the presence in the bush. May the rest of the head, uh, uh, may these rest on the head of Joseph on the crown of the elect of his brothers. Like a firstling bull in his majesty, he has horns like the horns of the wild ox. With them he gores the peoples, the ends of the earth, one and all. These are the myriads of Ephraim. These are the thousands of Menashe. All right, so you're getting a sense of the Deuteronomist, but you're getting a sense of the poetic Moshe talking about each tribe, just as Bert said, as Yaakov had done, uh, speaking to each tribe uh, as their eponymous ancestor, right? The, the ancestor for whom the tribe is named, uh, if we were to unpack all that poetry, it would be, you know, if he, if Benjamin is resting securely, it means that the tribe of Benjamin is nestled between, you know, two mountains and is safe and is doing well. This is, remember, retrojected onto Moshe by late authors. So put back into the mouth of Moshe. So whatever the actual situation of the tribes were at the time of the writing, that's one of the ways they try to date some of this material is what's happening and um, whether whether it's the personification of Moab in Asav, you know, or whatever, they try to date some of this material by what was actually happening in historic Israel that we know of from the record and that might tell us as it's retrojected when it's retrojected from. So this is material that is about the tribes that's put back onto describing their eponymous ancestor. It's like a justification of the status quo? Correct. Correct. Yes. Basically saying, Moses said it, so it must be right. Right. That I'm rich and they're... And if you have a theocracy, if God is your king, then it has to be right. They couldn't afford for it, the status quo, not to be right, right? Because that would mean, God forbid... That God was wrong. We can't have that. So you have to justify what's happening always if you're dealing with a theocracy. What was the situation at the time that these were written? So that's that's a good question. So most scholars... It's a pretty big question. Mm-hmm. It's a very big question. <laughs> most scholars put it post-exile. So this is post-exilic. 580 BCE. So 586 BCE is the destruction, right? Correct. So it's post-exile. And then 50 years later, of course, Cyrus allows them to return. Not a lot of people come back. They like it too well in New York, right? 
to have a pretty good life in New York? Babylon. They had a good life in Babylon, right? They had a nice life in Babylonia. So, um, so some come back, and Ezra and Nehemiah at that time decide, okay, the people have been out of touch with their texts, so we're going to make them hear it regularly. And this is when a regular reading of Torah is established by Ezra and Nehemiah. And then they write it down here that they have to do it? And then they write it down here and retroject it that they have to do it. That's how it works. Right? That's how that's how this stuff works. I was briefly looking at the Hebrew. There's one phrase here. I had never known where it came from. Torah Tzivalanu Moshe. Torah Tzivalanu Moshe. Torah, 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 Torah. Right? So lots of your pediatric Jewish knowledge. Now, here it is. <laughs> right? Um, and also from this parsha, we get one of the lines from uh, Adon Olam: "Lo kam be Yisrael kemoshe od. Lo kam be Yisrael kemoshe od. Navi umabit." All right, we're gonna we're gonna go there. Um, so so that's what's happening with the poetry. Let's go to thirty four and read from there. Go ahead. I'm going to cry. <laughs> Moses went up from the steps of Moab to Mount Nebo to the summit of Pisgah, opposite Jericho, and Adonai showed him the whole land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, the whole land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev, and the plain, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And Adonai said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will assign it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you shall not cross there. So Moses, the servant of Adonai, died there in the land of Moab at the command of Adonai. God buried him in the valley of, in the land of Moab near Beth Peor, and no one knows his burial place to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were undimmed and his vigor unabated, and the Israelites bewailed Moses in the steps of Moab for 30 days. The period of wailing and mourning for Moses came to an end. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands upon him. And the Israelites heeded him, doing as Adonai had commanded Moses. Never again did there arise in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom Adonai singled out face to face for the various signs and portents that Adonai sent him to display in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his courtiers and his whole country, and for all the great might and awesome power that Moses displayed before all Israel. Chazak, chazak, venit chazak. May we be strengthened in our continued study of Torah. We won't leave today without starting Breshit. Uh, but since Laura has concluded the last line of Torah, chazak, chazak, venit chazak. So Moshe goes up from the steps of Moab to Mount Nebo, opposite Yericho, and God shows him the whole land, <coughs> everything. And God says to him, 
This is the land which I swore to Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. I will assign it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you shall not cross there. So it's a it's a very intimate scene. And sad. And sad. And sad. And I don't think it's sad just because it's Moshe. It is sad because it's Moshe, of course. And I think it's sad because this is the human the, this is the human condition. It's sad because we all know we're going to look and not be able to go. Or we've known someone who's looked and not been able to go where we are, who won't see their grandchildren grow up, who won't see this one get married, who won't. This, this is so poignant to us because this is the saddest thing we have to deal with, which is our own end and the end of people we love. And I love that Torah has it as a very intimate experience between God and Moshe. This is, this is a quiet scene. It is a, a scene of a lot of love and a lot of compassion. And it doesn't change the fact that Moshe is not going. Moshe is not perfect. This is an important part of our teaching, right? Rabbi Jonathan Sachs sets out like 10 things, you know, that about the life of Moshe and what it teaches, given that he's the paradigm for us. Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe, our rabbi, our teacher, he's the paradigmatic prophet and teacher and leader. And even he doesn't get to go in because he's not perfect. And he messes up. How wonderful that in our tradition... The big guy is not perfect. We are not a tradition that lifts up a human being who's perfect and says, try to be like that. That's not Jewish. Judaism says, if you're human, by definition, you're flawed. Okay. No excuse. No excuse for not trying in every way to do it right. To do it better than last week. Now, no excuses. Even Moshe was flawed. He doesn't get to quit because he messes up. We don't get to quit. And the other thing is he's not the leader. As the rabbis teach, they, they don't just blame it on the fact that Moshe messes up, that he doesn't go into the land. A lot of commentary suggests it's not his role that they need a new leader to to go to war, to conquer. Never happened, remember? It never happened. <laughs> but the story is they're going to conquer the land, right? So they need a diff, they need Joshua. They need a young, vibrant general to take them in and to do the next steps of building a society. It's not Moshe. Moshe was the guy to get them away from Pharaoh. He was the guy to schlep them through the desert to deal with them complaining and losing faith and getting punished and complaining and losing faith and getting punished and complaining again. That's That was Moshe. That was his role. That's what he was good at. It's what he was needed for. But now it's time for Joshua. And so another thing from our tradition that this whole business of Moshe teaches us is 
there isn't one kind of leader forever and for every situation. Moshe was perfect for his time and his situation and his people, but there, we need different kinds of leaders for different kinds of times, for different kinds of folk, for different circumstances. Um, not, it's not one size fits all, which is a really important point, I think. We tend to, we tend to grasp and hang on to, well, if that worked, well, that's the way we should always do it, right? Because, you know, we just, we get all clingy and we want to hold on. And, you know, the real teaching here is, yeah, it worked for then, but we need a different president now, you know, or a different, you know, fill in the blank, a different teacher for a different time in our lives. Yes, Bert? I had a question about verse 6. They're in, uh, I think it's the conservative Siddur. They quote a part of the Talmud that says the Torah begins with loving kindness and ends with loving kindness. Mm-hmm. And they quote how it begins with loving kindness that God clothed Adam and Eve. And when they say it ends with loving kindness, they quote this verse. Right. They buried him in the land of Moab, in the valley of the land of Moab. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Chesed shall emet, loving kindness, true loving kindness. And how do we define, according to the tradition, chesed shall emet, true loving kindness? Is loving a loving kind act that can't be repaid. So that's true chesed. Because as long as, as long as you're around and I do something nice for you, there's a possibility always in the back of my mind, isn't there? That if I extend myself and I really do something great for you, that at some point you're going to do something nice for me when I need it, right? This is this is how most societies function, right? We need reciprocity is how you know some whole cultures are built on favors. That's their entire economy is built on people owing you favors. So, um, so it's huge. You know, it's, it's huge. Chesed shel emet is those acts we extend ourselves to do that there's no possibility that they'll be repaid, the greatest of which is burial. Sitting with the body. Sitting with the body. Kaddish. Kaddish. Because there's no possibility the deceased is going to be able to pay us back. So that's a true, generous, loving, you know, which I say at funerals all the time. This is a loving act that we do. That you've chosen to be here today, right? Is because there's no possibility of getting anything from it. That's and so God, God's self, buries Moshe. God, God's self, extends Chesed Shel Emet to Moshe, says the tradition, which is a beautiful, beautiful to me way to end Moshe's career, right? The clothing the naked and burying the dead become very important Jewish things. Hundred percent. Paula? I'm also thinking that there's no wizardry called forth to say, to make a, cast a spell, provide a special nostrum so that Moses won't die, or that he's, or that we have to keep him alive and that he may not die. I mean, this is sort of no, huge a, tool. a way of, of Giving ourselves a permission. Lovely. Very, so very important is that Moshe dies. There's no resurrection. He doesn't 
appear in the sky. He dies. He's dead. And buried. And buried. Gone. He's mortal because we don't believe in anything else. It's very Jewish that even Moshe has an end. Even Moshe is mortal because that's the way it is. And there's no exemption because he was a great guy. There's no exemption because he was a great teacher. And life goes on. The people grieve and they mourn and Joshua becomes the leader and the people move on. This is how it is. This is how it's meant to be. He's not a a worn out old man because his his eyes were undimmed and his vigor unabated. So you can die at the peak of your powers. That's when he goes out at the top of his game. So some people ask, well, then, how did he die? If, right? If he's not sick, he's not at the end. You know, what, what happened? And the rabbis have a beautiful tradition. If you look at the Hebrew, your English, when I heard you read it, said, and mine does too, that he dies at the command of God. What does that mean? Right? What's the Hebrew? We always have to go back to the Hebrew, right? Because when we're dealing with a translation, we're dealing with somebody's interpretation of the Hebrew. <laughs> Let's go back to the Hebrew. And it says, how did he die? Al pi Adonai. By the mouth of God. So for the rabbis, what does that mean? God kissed Moshe into death. God kisses Moshe and essentially takes the life out of Moshe. What is the next thing we're about to read? What are we going to read? We are about to now go read God breathing life into Adam. I mean, it doesn't get more beautiful than this. It just doesn't. Right? The bookends are, you know, that that God kisses Moshe and Moshe dies. And we're about to have God kiss the earthling and it becomes alive. I mean, I'm chill. It's, I mean, there's... It's also interesting that traditionally they say that the Torah comes from Al-Piyadonai, that... From the mouth of God. From the mouth of God. Mm-hmm. It's the same same language. Right? Because we don't live by bread alone, says Torah. Right. But, but by whatever... But by what comes out of God's mouth. Right? Beautiful. Where do the rabbis get that Moshe is not allowed in because he was flawed? I mean, that's not <laughs> right here. It's earlier that God says. Well, there's a couple of different reasons, aren't there? We're not clear why. We're clear that it's a consequence. We're not sure of what. There's a couple of possibilities that we discuss every year when we get there about how we're not clear. Yeah, right? So um, the other thing is that Moshe's buried. Where is Moshe buried? No one knows. Why do you think no one knows? Why does Torah have it that way? So that he can't be made into a god. So he cannot be made into a god. Exactly. So that his burial place will not be a place of focus or worship. So that there should be no possibility that Moshe is raised 
to some semi-divine status. We don't have that as Jews. We don't get to. Or the reverse is that we we know that it's in the valley in the land of Moab, so all of that place could be raised. People tend to not fixate on a valley, right? They fixate on, this is where his remains are, this is where his body is. And so to venerate, okay, this is the area where, we're not even sure where that is. We do venerate the land. 100%. But not because Moses is somewhere there. Correct. Although in Jordan, I was once being driven to the airport outside of Amman, and I'm on the road, I'm just driving along, and then there's a sign with an arrow, it says Mount Nebo this way. We don't know where this is. Let's be very clear. We do not know where this is. Same reason we don't know where Mount Sinai is. So the monastery thinks they figured it out, but it's purposefully left vague so that the mountain will not be venerated, so that Moshe's burial place will not be venerated, so that Moshe, that we get to leave him. We have to move on. That's so that's the teaching. We have to let go, and we have to move on. I was thinking about you know modern fiction when you sort of sometimes authors will set a place specifically. It's this town, and everybody who's ever been there can say, "Oh, I remember being there." And then there's people who like um, you know set it in this fictional town that sounds a lot like Santa Barbara, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't know exactly if it is that. It's a similar thing. So it just it has to be. It's in, it's somewhere in your imagination. You can maybe picture it, an idea of what it might be. It could look like that mountain that's there over there, but it's keeping it um, keeping it fictional or um, idealized makes it. You don't know, and it could be it could be any one of them. It could be every one of them. Well, and my daughter. You know, she reads a lot these days, thank God. I thought it would never happen. So she reads a lot, and she's always somewhat disappointed when she sees the movie because that's not how she pictured it. That's not what four looks like, right, or Katniss. And so I think there's part of that too, is that is that if we don't know exactly where it is and we can't look at a photograph of it or a drawing or a rendering of it, we... We imagine it the way we need it to be, or in a way that's familiar to us. You know, the mountains of West Virginia. You know, whatever it is that mountain evokes for us or valley evokes for us becomes very personal if it's not a real place. It's too literal. It it can right. It can be. Diane. I was going to say. Yeah, I I have a little. A lot of question mark about the existence of Moses altogether. <laughs> so uh, when they say he died, could be because paradise is something left to whether you believe it or not, which was Israel at the time. I'm confused. How did paradise come in here? Well, um, paradise because since he was not allowed to go to a concrete place that we said he died before he got there. Right. This is almost like to me when we die, we have to have faith of what happened afterwards. That's what it represents to me. So what comes next? He what didn't get next? to what comes next right. and we don't either we don't until really we die. Until we die. But we have to have faith that God is with us and he knows what he's doing. In other words, 
it, it is a <clears throat> that's what it represents to me more mm-hmm. than anything else that we have to have faith of what Moses has written or other people have written about what happened and, and so on that and the, the place where we are when we are uh, in the exodus when we are slaves slaves to what it could be to million things in our personal life as well as a community so there's a part where we have to let go and God does not permit us because we die so therefore your faith is it's question you understand what I'm saying I'm not, I'm not sure but it, so right so the, that Moshe ends is critically important that's right it has to me it's very important that, like we said it's very important that our Moshe our beloved Moshe dies because that's the way it is. I, I look at Pharaoh and Moses that exist within us. Of course. That's how I look at of it. Course. Not as a, as a concrete person, but within us we have that shifting all the time. Of course. That's how I look at it. Yeah. So they mourn Moshe. They mourn Moshe, and as soon as that's over, Yoshua comes forward. And we're not exactly clear what it means that he's filled with the spirit of wisdom because is it because Moshe laid hands on him right or is that the indication that he's filled with wisdom that Moshe you know Moshe designates him in front of the people we're not exactly sure um but this this is still as we've said before this is still what happens with uh rabbinic ordination in every movement except reconstructionism that all other rabbis at the moment of becoming rabbis there's a laying of the hands onto them mimicking this gesture of Moshe to Yeshua we do not do that in the reconstructionist movement we get a diploma and are pronounced rabbi by the president how did you feel about Mixed. Um, I'm proud that we are intellectually honest enough to say we don't believe that there is zappage that starts with Moshe and works its way down to give us authority. I really like that, that, that it is a degree, that it is earned by study, and it's given to us by the people that call us rabbi, right? When people say, you're not a real rabbi. It's like, really? Tell that to a thousand families in Pacific Palisade, right? They they determine who's their rabbi, thank you very much, because we don't believe this, you know, that there's some zappage that actually makes you an authority. That's on the one hand. So I'm very proud of our intellectual honesty and our spiritual honesty. On the other hand, there is that that blessing moment that feels wonderful to have happen at that moment of transformation into becoming a rabbi. And it's not that we don't use this, right? Every bar and bat mitzvah, I stand before the open ark and put my hands on their head and offer them the priestly benediction. So it's Shabbat. And on Shabbat. Right. I don't see any different from a father blessing a child. Yeah. It's uh, just a blessing. But if somebody wants to make an argument that uh, Moses had some superficial, uh, supernatural powers they could use. They could quote this. And they do. Yeah. That, so that, I guess that's the difference. When it's blessing, I have no issue at all with it. But smicha is not blessing. Let's be clear. When smicha happens, when they make a rabbi mm-hmm. with smicha, 
It's about zappage. It's about supernatural back to Sinai. You know, now you have a changed authority because you got some of it from here. And that's that I'm glad we don't. I didn't realize that reenact. in today's world that people think some people have zappage powers. But <laughs> oh. yeah. what? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and going back to this whole business of not knowing where Moshe's buried, but the, the way we know that that's a good instinct like to protect against is to this day, Hasidic masters, their graves are venerated. So that's zappage. People go lay down on their grave to, to, to get some of that, right? They eat from the crumbs that fall out of the Rebbe's mouth from his plate because it's got that. So we want that. We always want that. Magic. We want it. Badly. And so we have to protect against our own our own wanting to access that. And this is this is one of those ways, but and and for reconstructionists anyway, smicha is another one. Mm-hmm. Don't you think for a second, Rabbi, that you have any supernatural anything, you are just another Jew. I tell you I'm disappointed. With a lot <laughs> <laughs> Uh oh. There went my job security. Right? Sorry, Ruben. <laughs> I think probably for the majority of reform and conservative and whoever else rabbis who receive that smicha probably interpret it as blessing and not as, I mean, I would, maybe not, I've not been through that experience, but maybe after all that hard work, you do kind of want to feel like you are special. Sure. What Hence... Hence, abolishing the practice in our movement, right? Because sure, that's of course, of course. But what it says here, two pages, two pages, two pages. What it says here that uh, Joshua has from Moses is ruach chokmah, which can you talk about that Hebrew? Because that's yeah, really spacey. <laughs> really spacey. Well, no, so, it's not like authority, or it's not like he's the king. So, the, and this is, um. It's spirit, but it's also isn't it related to breath. Spirit. Spirit. Um, so. It's not like knowledge. It's, it's intelligence. Well, it's what God has in making the world. <laughs> so, part of it is dependent on what period we're talking about. It de- Chokhmah develops as a concept into that's what God creates the world out of. Right. That's not a biblical idea. So, so. It does develop into that. Here, this seems to denote what happens when you are in favor with God in terms of leadership. So David has the Ruach of God in him. Bitzalel has as well. And then when Saul falls out of favor, we're told... That God removes that from Saul. So, so it's, it's unclear exactly what it means. My, my interpretation has always been something like charisma in a good way, right? So that you have, that, that the Ruach of Adonai is kind of the spirit of the divine fills you for that role. 
is you project holiness you, or something. Yeah, like right, and it's chokhmah. So it's definitely about wisdom. He, you know, this is not just about his ability to, you know, fight. It be a capital W, <laughs> right? Half capital W. Half capital W. Instead <laughs> of V. Big one. A big one. Right. Let's let's look at Rabbi Yael Shai. Um, and we're going to go, we just read what she's quoting, right? She's quoting through verse 10 of our Parsha, yes? And there was no other prophet who arose in Israel like Moses, whom Yudhe Vavhe knew panim el panim, face to face. In this scene of remarkable tenderness, Moses climbs the mountain and looks at the land that his people will enter. God then takes his life with a kiss, according to Rashi, and then buries Moses in a mysterious and unknown location with Joshua in position to take over. Moses' only job is to let go of his life. And our only job is to let go of Moses. It is harder than I thought it would be, says Rabbi Shai. This is not the first time she's read this book. <laughs> All right, so let's be clear. She's a rabbi. She's read this a few times. It's harder than I thought it would be. I'm sure Joshua is great and all, but the text itself says that Israel never knew another prophet like Moses. Even though I knew it was coming, Moses' loss is a tough one to take. Something about his struggle and his grit, his insecurity and his faith made me feel close to him as I read about his journey each week. I feel a sadness and loss when he climbs that mountain and dies. I feel clingy to Moses and to all the real people in my life who I want to remain alive forever. Why does he have to die? Why does everyone have to die? Reading this closing part of our Torah, we've been with Moshe now for a year again. Well, maybe not a year, but starting with Exodus. And we get a little clingy, don't we? Moshe says, I'm not a man of words. I'm of uncircumcised lips. I can't do this. And there's a part of us that loves that about Moshe, that he's not perfect, that he doesn't see himself as a leader, that he resists the job, because that's every single one of us. Right? Like, who, wait, who, what, me? No, thank you. <laughs> right? I can't do that. It's not me. So I love the way she identifies that we, we come, we are attached to Moshe. Because cause he's, you get him, don't you? And don't you feel bad for him every week with these people? Amcha. This crazy, stiff-necked people, us, all the, all the leaders, all the teachers, all the grandparents who loved us anyway. Moshe represents so much of what we're attached to, what we're grateful for, what we need to flourish. And we don't want to let it go. She says, and then I remember that day on the dock. I remember what, meaning a moment she had at a meditation retreat. 
I remember what Abraham Joshua Heschel calls the secret stillness that preceded our birth and succeeds our death, pulsing underneath the entire universe. I remember that birth and death are just stages of a wave that ultimately returns to the sea and was always composed of the sea. In fact, she says all of nature points at the truth of this constantly birthing, constantly dying cycle. Nothing comes from nothing, and nothing that is present ever disappears. If you look big enough and you look small enough, you see that all of life is flow and change, crest and fall, no beginnings, no ends. This great, amazing cycle, circle, that the only way to hold the reality of needing to let go is to understand that we let go into all of it. Right? How, how do we live with this mortal business? Both ours and the people we love? Most folk that I know who get to this place of wisdom and depth and equanimity get there by somehow understanding that it's all part of the great unfolding, that it's not separate, that we're not completely separate. And maybe there's other ways to get there, but it's what I've noticed from the people you want to be around, right? The people who truly reek of sanity and serenity are people who somehow really get it that it's all a part of the Great One, capital O. Like she says here, that that waves have their shape and their time and their trajectory and their momentum, and then they crash on the shore. They don't disappear they become ocean. The, it didn't stop being ocean, as Rabbi Rabbi Rami Shapiro says, right? It never stopped being ocean. It was wave for a while, but it was always ocean, and it's ocean again when it's done being wave. And we resist not being wave anymore. And we miss the waves that we've known. And both of those have to be held Side by side. And that is the great majesty of being human is that we know that we're the only creature that we know of that knows that. We're the only ones that know we're temporary. My dog has no clue that it's coming to an end at some point. How blissful is that? <laughs> right? You know, when you, when you, if you love a child and you see when the child first gets it, that they're going to die too. It's it's just heartbreaking. That, but that's the great majesty, isn't it? That we're aware of it and manage to have moments of joy anyway. <clears throat> that is the great majesty. Blanche? When my grandson Eric was five, he said to me, that's not going to happen to me. Because <laughs> that's how we cope, isn't it? Or it's not going to happen this week. <laughs> right? Like, that's how we cope. We have to. Because how would we go on otherwise? 
right? If we were really staying in that place all the time, that would be really yucky. And we'd be really depressed all the time. There's a whole medical and vitamin industry that has been built on the fact that nobody's going to die. Or we don't want to. If we find the right antioxidants. Right? So it, it, it's based, that industry is successfully based in our fear of either being ill and or of decline and of, of course, ultimately death. Isn't all fear ultimately right, about the ways we're not in control and the things that are going to happen to us that we don't want to happen. I think this is all designed to make us want to go back to Brashik. <laughs> this is all designed all over again. to make we us want to go back to Brashik. Lest, lest we end up dead. <laughs> right? All right, so come. He's... Bert's brought us once again full circle. Go to the last page, the the page that has the poem on it, the beginning of the poem. I think it's page three. So second side, I don't know. First side of your second sheet. There is a grace. Is that what you're looking at? That starts. There is a grace. Yeah, that that poem. There is a grace. Yes, you see it. Okay. So, but go to the paragraph above it and Judaism. You see it? Mm-hmm. And Judaism, in its infinite wisdom, reminds us of the cycle of death and life in the Torah itself. Not She's talking about Yom Kippur. We just did our rehearsal of death on Yom Kippur, right? So that we learn to let go and change and do it as if really this was the end and really changes how we behave and who we become. She says, but it also happens in our cycle of Torah reading itself. We read this parsha of Moses' death often at the same moment, Simchat Torah, as we restart the cycle over again. Moses' exhale becomes Adam's inhale. We can and should grieve the loss of Moses and all who have died and will die. We can fear our own deaths, but we have a reminder every year that underneath all the drama and grasping in life, we can let go and find God again. We can come panim al panim, face to face, with life, with breath, and with one. And Sarah Moskowitz will read us out to the words of the poet Stephen Levine. There's a beautiful poem called Millennium Blessing that describes this process. There is a grace approaching. that we shun as much as death. It is the completion of our birth. It does not come in time, but in timelessness, when the mind sinks into the heart and we remember. It is an instant grace that draws us to the edge and beckons us to surrender safe territory and enter our enormity. We know we must pass beyond knowing and fear the shedding, but we are pulled upward nonetheless through forgotten ghosts and unexpected angels luminous. And there is nothing left to say, but we are that, and that is what we sing about.
There's more on your back. Oh, more. Just a little. That is what we sing about. There is a beginning and an end, and then a beginning again. Breath in, breath out, breath in again. It is an insistent grace that draws us to the edge and beckons us to surrender safe territory and enter our enormity. So may it be for each of us as we begin this new year. May we succumb to that insistent grace. May we be willing to leave safe territory that we might enter our own enormity. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.